0: Welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for local authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your third-week host, Cole Erickson. Our guest today is Ben Platic. Ben is a literature scholar and writer based in Milwaukee, as well as an associate professor of English at Marquette University. He has published short fiction in Strange Horizons, Slate's Future Tense Fiction, PodCastle, and Elsewhere. Ben is here to talk with us today about his debut novel, Dryland, which appears this month from the University of Wisconsin Press. Uh, To give a little synopsis of the book, it is 1917 and the First World War rages across Europe. We find our main character, Rand Brandt, an idealistic young forester in the north woods of Wisconsin who has just discovered he has a remarkable gift. His touch can grow any plant in minutes. Overjoyed with this discovery, Ran dreams of devoting his life to conservation through this strange gift, testing his powers, pushing his physical limits, and revealing his secret only to his lover Gabriel. But it isn't long before his gift is revealed, and Ran is drafted to grow resources for the war effort. Ran soon realizes the true price of his gift and its tragic limitations. In order to survive, he must confront the terrifying possibility that his gift is actually a curse, upending everything he believes about nature, love, and himself. And with that, it is a great pleasure to welcome Ben Platic to Madison BookBeat. Ben, thanks for joining us, and congrats on the book.
1: Thank you so much, Cole. Um, I'm very thrilled to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, happy to have you. It was a great read, Um, amazing premise um, that really kind of got me to pick up the book. I was really excited about that and kind of loved where it went, and yeah, so I, I know you, this is your first debut novel, so congratulations. Uh, I guess first question, because I know you do different research um, in poetics and different things I saw, so maybe you can talk about that, but what, what kind of got you started on this book and how did it, um, how did it completely evolve into your first novel?
1: Yeah, thank you. So I am a relative newcomer to Wisconsin. I moved here about a decade ago and I fell in love with the landscape. So learning more about Wisconsin nature, going out and hiking around a bunch, and then also reading a ton of Aldo Leopold was the kind of direct inspiration for the story. Uh, The novel's more immediate seed was a short story that I published in a wonderful literary magazine called Blackingtons, which is sadly now on permanent hiatus. And that story imagines some World War I veterans being recruited for a magical conservation bureau that taught them to restore ecosystems with magic. Um, but the point of the Bureau was to restore landscapes, and I'm using heavy air quotes here, so that no one could tell how badly they'd been damaged, uh, in effect, to try and paper over the human history of the land. Um, and some of those thematics
0: stuck around in Dry Land, which is a novel very much about
1: the complexities of restoring nature.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I loved, I I think the, the character itself was, uh, right away when it jumped in, I loved how mindful he was of just, like, what this was, and how this wasn't just a a guy who got this power, and you know, he was just like, "Okay, I'm ready to grow things." He was so mindful and very disciplined. And being at 1917, um, yeah, there's just such a, I think, a great nexus of kind of with conservation and um, and when this happened. So, I think that was also the best way to kind of bring this in. And it was so it was so good to start navigating. Um, so, yeah, with that research process, like, where did you where did you really start with the research? Because I mean, there's there's so much to talk about in regards to the war effort itself and I had to remember my history of what was going on then right as it started, I got excited and then um, yeah, what was the wh- where did it start with the research and how deep did you go? Oh, that's such a great question for an
1: academic. So I did what I would consider to be a decent amount of research and I say decent because my previous, Book, which was an academic monograph took a decade to write since it began as my dissertation. So I did about a year's worth of research uh, to write Dryland, but that feels slight compared to the academic monograph because I didn't literally spend a decade preparing for it. Um, but I did do quite a lot of reading. My research process tended to start broad and then move more narrowly. So I read a bunch of uh, broad histories on ecology, World War I era America, the Forest Service and other things. And then um, as I narrowed down the plot and narrowed down my topic, at some more granular things um so one resource that was really valuable for me was a first person account of a man who was recruited as a forester to work in the um in the forestry battalion where rand actually is also drafted um and it, the novel actually follows his experiences pretty closely um I also did a lot of reading of novels written from the time period or by people who lived through the time period to try and capture some of the prose voice of the time. And probably there, my two biggest influences were Albert Leopold, as I've already said, um, and also William Maxwell, the one-time editor of The New Yorker, who wrote a bunch of novels that are about his
0: experiences in the Midwest in the early 20th century. That's great. Yeah, I know the... um... The, the the main thing that, that stood out to me, too, and uh, that really started reminding me of kind of this time and brushing on my history, um, especially with Aldo Leopold. And I'm kind of new to Wisconsin as well. So I got really excited to like, I need to pick this one up because Wisconsin is, I think, it's such a historically rooted in just the effort, um, which we'll hope to talk about, too, um, in regards to kind of socialism and just the political aspect, too, around that time. Um, I wanted to ask how, for listeners who may not know or also know, and just how it in, um, it kind of seeps into the book. How would you um, describe kind of that that time? I, I should say uh, he's a big uh, John Muir fan, um, is what it seems like. Yeah, in the book, and uh, it brought up kind of that aspect early on that notion between uh, preservation and conservation. Um, Can you talk a little bit about maybe the character and and maybe we can have you read a little bit uh, to start, um, but about kind of who that character is and kind of where he falls on that on that ecological um, opinion, I guess.
1: Right. So um, there is a lot of history that I could go over, uh, but I'll stick pretty tightly to specifically what you asked, which is about in the early 20th century, the distinction between conservation and preservation, which is itself a topic that multiple actual historical books have been written about. Um, so, I want to preface my answer by saying that I am a literature scholar and not a historian of ecology. So, what I'm about to say is quite general, and any actual historians listening to this will be able to point to where I'm getting things wrong. So, apologies in advance. <laughs> um, and I-, I should also put a pin in the fact before beginning, and I probably won't have time to return to this, but it's an important thing to note, is that uh, um, all ecological history is also local history. And the way that Wisconsin's early ecological history developed did have something to do with the fact that politically it was a really interesting space in the early 20th century. Uh, you have four different political parties operating in the state. So there's, you know, the socialists, the progressives, uh, the republicans, and the democrats, and they all had different perspectives uh, that I'm not going to be able to rehearse uh, on ecology. Okay, so all of that aside, uh, conservation versus preservation. So in the late 19th and early 20th century, when the U.S. Forest Service and Park Services were founded, they were competing views on the nation's wild spaces. Um, And listeners, you can't see this, but I'm air quoting wild, since neither the Forest Service nor the Park Service cared literally at all about the indigenous people that they were pushing off these wild lands. Um, I mean, they did purchase... Uh, lands uh, from indigenous peoples via treaties, but a lot of that was exploitative and then they didn't let the indigenous people who were still on those lands actually use them and fish and hunt in the way that they had previously. Um, but, you know, when the Forest Service and the Park Service were looking to create land to kind of create the national park system and the state park system that we have today, the philosophy that they were offering operating off of was a very romantic philosophy of wilderness that saw it as default unpeopled, which it was not and had not been. Um, And so this romantic philosophy of wilderness was one way for white settlers to pretend that the lands that they were stealing weren't already inhabited. Okay, so, you know, that's, again, prefatory. So finally, conservation and preservation. There's just so much history here. Uh, For sure. Yeah. So uh, these are two competing schools or school's intention in early ecological thought uh, conservation generally denoted a form of resource management it saw forests as banks of timber to be cultivated logged and regrown and preservation was more interested in keeping some places wild Um, and again air quotes and pristine again air quotes i.e., free of human meddling Um, though you know preservations were sometimes fine with having wild places serve recreational purposes Um, And John Muir enters the book because he's a famous early preservationist figurehead. And so Rand in the book reads a bunch of John Muir and gets very attached to this idea that we should preserve wild places and that any human footprint or any human handprint on the land at all is somehow degrading it. Um, So he starts the novel as a preservationist, but his ideas are complicated over the course of the book.
0: No, and that's what's so great about it, too, is that he... With the war effort, I think it's a really interesting way to put this gift that he's discovering, again, of this learning that he can instantly grow anything um, by just touching the soil. Um, with, yeah, these complex limitations that he's learning in real time, you know, he's being scientific about it, he's being very disciplined about it. And and with that, I think the, the war effort, which at the time, this is 1917, um, that it begins, and we are just entering the war at that time, and we have been at this time um, so resource heavy with supporting the war. Correct? It's and that's and that is where the um, the the conservationists, of course, will play out naturally in regards to okay, well, uh, Ran, we need your resources uh, for this war effort, and yet this subject, this uh, this character, Ran, is is so. He's so pure, I feel like, in just intention and trying to figure this out. So it, it creates a conflict right away, and I think that's so interesting. Um, I also wanted to compliment you on in this book how this is a this is a third person um, written, and yet I love how with this main character how much of an inner dialogue, even with third person, um, is so well kind of navigated in such complexities he's so torn at different times um and how that is just that that weird that very you know anxiety ridden kind of um mind space that is that happens often in a first person is so well kind of navigating a third person which i think is was particularly kind of uh, interesting and enjoyable so um of course yeah um, so I, I guess I wanted to follow up with um, let's let's have you read, if you don't mind, that discovery to kind of get the readers or the listeners, I should say, an aspect of kind of who this guy is and, and what he's coming across here. OK, so
1: uh, thank you. And just to follow up really briefly yeah. on your comment that this is a book about a kind of anxiety ridden character who is constantly second guessing himself in his own head, I have described it. book to people as a book about a man who loves trees and hates himself (laughs) (laughs) Nice, yeah which is which is the log line if if there had to be one um so i'm going to read from the first chapter a few pages in this is the moment when brand first discovers that he has this magical ability to grow plants from nothing and immediately becomes very excited about it so it's about three minutes long uh brand is on a survey team of six people, surveying somewhere in the North Woods, you know, between Lincoln and Taylor counties, um, all of the places in the book are based on real places that I've been. So he's somewhere in the North Woods, and he has gone off to try to find mushrooms for supper. um Okay, so actually, the the, the excerpt begins when he is remembering um, discovering his gift. So. Then he closed his eyes and, as he had every night for the past week, relived the moment he discovered his gift. He supposed he should be grateful to Gabriel. That afternoon on the line, he'd been playfully abusing Wisconsin after losing a sock to a kettle's swampy verge. Rand took it harder than he should have. As he did not want to be irritated with Gabriel before nightfall, that evening, instead of returning with the team to camp, he said he would gather mushrooms for supper he struck off up the esker to the west, toward the drooping hemlocks lining its ridge. Sliding down against a bowl, he let his head rest against the red bark and watched sunset string shadows across the understory. The hemlocks were the only big trees left in this forty, snubbed by loggers because they made poor boardwood. Beneath their shadows the ground was mostly bare. Further down the esker the brush thickened. Around the old stumps of maple and basswood, needles of third-growth aspen flashed in the slanting sun. Chopping through them for sight lines was scratchy, tedious work made worse by the mud. It was a broken landscape, hard to survey, harder to love. He should not have taken it so hard. He curled his fingers into the soil and tried to let everything drain out of him. Gabriel's laugh, the draft card he'd signed three weeks ago, The hope and fear wound always about his throat at this, his first real Forest Service post. To focus, he closed his eyes, remembering that he was here not for what these woods were now, but for what, with time and care, they could be. He imagined this forest as it might look in fifty years if their survey convinced the Department of Agriculture to purchase and preserve it. He replaced the aspens with sugar maple and yellow birch, the churned mud with ephemeral pools the brown aprils with flowers, yellow trout lily, purple liver leaf, white trillium. When he opened his eyes again, the ridge was a sea of snow. He sat up sharply, hundreds of trillium unfurled across what had been bare ground beneath the hemlocks. Their three-pointed flowers nodded at him from dark green shields. For a long moment he could not think. He blinked, shook his head, wondering if he had misremembered the landscape but he had just stared down the length of this esker, and knew no trillium grew there. He looked down at his hands. Between each finger a flower sprouted. He looked up. The mat of trilliums was a perfect circle, and he was its center. At his graduation from Yale's Forest School that May, its former dean, the Forest Service's chief, had spoken to their class. Remember, said the chief, fixing them with keen eyes, there are no mysteries, only phenomena, You are stewards of this nation's woodlands, but you are also its scientists. Never stop asking questions and never rule out answers, because they seem impossible. Rand laid his fingers to the soil and thought of large-flowered trillium. He did not know much save their Latin name and their cheery appearance each April during the second wave of spring blooms. Yet as he concentrated he could feel something warm and bright flowing out of him, touching like a hidden spring the rhizomes buried below the hemlocks. As he watched, at the tips of his fingers, two green nubs pushed up. Their buds opened like white stars. Trembling, Rand shifted his hands to the bowl's far side. Touching the soil again, he drew up another trillium, then another, pausing between each to touch their leaves, stems, sepals. Slowly, deliberately, he grew flower after flower, testing their reality and his own sanity as evening fell around him and he tried to swallow the fire rising in his chest. Only when the hemlocks had gone gray and shadowless did he stumble back down the Asker, his body lit with joy, his feet dragging
0: through the field of darkened stars. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was. it's in that discovery that I think when I realized that, okay, if it was me out there um, and I was discovering this kind of, this crazy gift, you know, where would my mind go? Especially, I think, too, taking it in a modern age. I mean... Something that is so wild, um, you know, in 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 a picture of 1917, kind of where he was in the forestry, and yet to think now too, kind of how that land has one stayed the same, but also just completely how it's changed. And I love that. I love that quote. Um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting it now. But it's not it's not mysteries. It's phenomenon. Is that what it was? Right. Yeah. There are no mysteries. Only only phenomena. So it's yeah. the, the very scientific approach of. Uh, the
1: early Forest Service, but the, the current Forest Service. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Well, and I and I love how with that too. There's the the phenomenon. It's, it's. I think what this character really um, does is it creates that conversation in a real, in a very real way, with nature and how you know we are a part of it and how this this um you know this character specifically is becoming a part of it in a manageable way that he was already doing um, with the forestry. Um, but I, I guess, so my next question I, I, wanted to ask you then is, um, with that, when you were navigating that character, did you have an, did you have an understanding in writing of kind of with this, with this power that is that idea? Did you have that fully formulated in your mind of, of where, you know, how he would navigate that, that power himself, just like, you know, as the reader thinking, what would you do? And. And kind of um, what was your intention for kind of where where uh, he would go and what lessons maybe he would learn? So, yeah, I mean, the, the point of the book was definitely
1: in my mind before I began writing it. I knew what the arc of his power was going to be. I knew what would happen with the power and I knew a fair bit about where let me start that again i knew a fair bit about what his personal relationship was to the power and how it paralleled some of the personal development he undergoes throughout the novel Uh, and i want to talk about this without spoiling it too much but i don't really care that much about spoilers so so what i will say is this um rand has this magic power to grow any plant super quickly if he just has access to its seeds or roots and If you think about that kind of botany for more than literally three seconds, you can already see why it's not sustainable in any definition of the word. Plants just don't grow that way. Um, And so Rand should have known this, but he's so bowled over by magic and thinking, oh, maybe magic doesn't obey ecological laws, that he believes for a little bit that he's going to be able to restore entire forests uh, with this gift. And in particular, to restore Clearwater Marsh, which is a... (laughs) is sort of vaguely based on Horicon Marsh, uh, a marsh that he loves very deeply and got dredged during the early 20th century and has been kind of despoiled. Um, and he also wants to regrow the Northwoods, which at this point in Wisconsin's history had been very thoroughly clear-cut. Um, but over the course of the novel, Rand begins to realize that his gift is this quick fix. Um, it doesn't require its user to learn anything about the complexities of a given natural environment. And we know that those natural environments are incredibly complex. To give one example of how complex they are and how Rand's knowledge, it will never be complete enough to use this kind of magical gift. Um, when I was researching the novel, I tried to keep Rand's understanding of, of ecology historical. So he, I wanted him mostly to know only what somebody in 1917 would have known and thought about ecology. Um, So, for example, Rand still believes in this idea called succession, the idea that ecosystems move through a predictable, orderly series of changes until they reach a climax state. And he talks a lot about climax states in the novel. Um, Ecologists starting in, I I think, the 70s, it could have even been earlier, don't think this way about ecosystems anymore. Nature is never as orderly as humans want it to be. Um, And because Rand is imposing all of these human ideas of order um, and, frankly, his own dreams very idealistic and benevolent dreams but dreams of being a savior of nature onto his gift Uh, he has to learn that you that isn't the way to repair ecological damage wrought by a hundred years of
0: industrialization and deforestation you you just can't do that with magic it's um and i love that because it it really i began to navigate my own sense of that naivete i think with this book and that's where for listeners um you know don't don't feel too intimidated listening as this this is a a great just fun read as much as it can be a deep dive as well into theory and and just ecology and whatnot but I think that's what too I I really enjoyed this is because this wasn't anything of like oh okay I I don't know my botany okay it it was it was such more of a a true novel of perspective of okay I have this power, let's do it. And it, and I think it it put forth a perspective of humanity at large. Um, accurately, I think, in 1917, as far as the, maybe the lack of research as of that time, but also present day as far as so many of us, you know, not in the field, uh, not with the present knowledge and thinking, okay, we, you know, I have this power. Um, let's do it. Let's change the world. Let's grow, you know, resource, resource. Um, and just understanding how that can really collapse, and not, ta- or and how much it takes for granted that complexity. Um, I think it's it's a it's a novel that really puts forth a humbling in a very personal way um, through this this hypothetical scenario, if you will, um, which I think is is great. And I wanted to speak to also how when I was reading this book. I really felt as things went on how much technology in my mind kind of acted as a or, you know, supposed a metaphor um, for this power that he has. Because I think we're all through, you know, as humans with technology in all different ways and discovering new abilities and everything, we're trying to find that next superpower and even for the better how can we just make things a little bit better um, through technology and ability? So I was wondering if you shared that metaphor, if that was uh, something that you kind of, um, you know, also agreed with, or maybe speak a little bit about that, of how the the allegory of technology, maybe. So
1: from what I understand, what you're asking is, is the way that Rand's magic operates in the novel a metaphor for how we understand technology to possibly offer solutions to ecological crisis.
0: Yeah, I'd um, say. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, <laughs> the novel isn't directly allegorical in any way, although I do love allegory as a genre. Um, it's one of my favorites. Uh, but I do think it's, I mean, it's a book about restoring nature. So it's pretty fair to say there's obvious thematic connections to today. Um, I mean, most obviously, this is a book about choosing to be in respectful community with nature rather than seeing it as either an up. Op- object of exploitation or an object of salvation um so that's obviously relevant now that climate change is so much worse than it already was in the early 20th century and is on track to get even more apocalyptic than it already is and you know as i said earlier there isn't a quick or easy fix to how badly we have screwed up the planet and every time somebody shows up with a magical technological solution so you know, some Silicon Valley venture capitalist pops up and tries to sell you on a magic solution to the climate crisis. I don't want to say they're lying to you, but they're lying to you. They probably are definitely trying to sell you something and they may or may not be in bed with ExxonMobil. So, you know, the book wasn't intended as a direct commentary on how we should solve climate change. Uh, Jeff Vandermeer, um, a big kind of like, eco-cli-fi writer um, who is famous for a trilogy called the Annihilation Trilogy uh, wrote an article I forget where a few weeks ago where he expressed frustration with this idea that climate fiction was somehow going to save the planet it's not Um, art does many many things um, and salvation is definitely one of them but it isn't direct physical salvation in the way that I think sometimes people want technology to be and so climate fiction can explore the complexities around uh, why for example quick fixes are a bad idea uh but it unfortunately doesn't have a better answer than pay attention to nature as a community respect it see yourself as a part of it rather than something standing outside of it um and try to stop doing the large-scale exploitative things that are making everyone's life much worse um we are recording this interview in july of 2023 and we've just gone through a month of having unbreathable air because of the Canadian wildfires and that's coming out of global warming mm-hmm. um, so there are concrete things we can do to stop that none of those concrete things are magical technology No, yeah, all s- slow and require quite a lot of political agency um, and I hate saying that because wow I would love there to be a magical solution but I, I think that believing in that might keep us from seeing what the actual solution is which that it is just hard and takes a lot of time
0: and an enormous amount of effort and political will. Most definitely. And, and I think uh, that, too, is where that character, Iran, in the book kind of really, I mean, again, I don't want to spoil too many things, but just how that that struggle and almost that because it's it's a it can be a nihilism. You know, it can it can be digested as that. Right. It's just a sense of this isn't going to help. This isn't going to help. Um, but, but understanding that I think in a, in a, in a, in a romantic, intimate way with nature and its sacrifice and yeah, that, that community aspect, um, I think kind of really makes this, makes that lesson kind of, um, interpreted in a new language, if you will. Um, and I did want to speak to two, again, back to the historical context of this book, um, which makes it so noteworthy is, there's other elements that are that are coming into play with the war effort and kind of you spoke to community and whatnot, too. And and that element of sacrifice. I mean, he this this character does, you know, even though there's resistance and cynicism throughout the book, there does seem to be also that this character does have a will to to serve, you know, to to be for others Um in all walks and having those maybe promises, even though they're false and whatnot. Can you speak to maybe a little bit of the other elements and how you kind of, why you included such as, you know, maybe a political element of of writing or also his uh, romantic love affair that I want to get to too. Kind of why all those were kind of maybe involved in the book and why it hit so well together. So I think I will that's a whole yeah that's a lot for sure yeah Uh,
1: i want to talk a a little bit about that idea of sacrifice that you brought up uh because rand as he moves through the book becomes increasingly obsessed with this idea that self-sacrifice is the only or noblest way to serve others and i'm actually quite skeptical of that idea because martyrdom you know People martyring themselves for others is a a key component of any war film, right? That's your Saving Private Ryan's. Um, And it's an understandable impulse and I think quite often an altruistic one. But there's also something deeply egotistical in martyrdom because martyrdom claims my single person, if I just give entirely of myself, it's somehow going to solve this problem. It also focuses attention on the needs of the self to be a martyr, to be sacrificial, to show that you are a good person, to show that you're supportive, rather than the needs of the people you're supposed to be helping. Um, and that becomes a problem for Rand. He gets so wrapped up in the romance of sacrifice that sometimes he can't see beyond it. And that's a problem both for community and for ecology. Um, and I, I think that it is an especially important myth. Mm, let me start again. I think that this myth was especially promulgated around World War One, which was a war... No one wants to be in any war ever, but like people really didn't want to be in World War I because half the time you couldn't figure out what anyone was actually fighting about. bunch of complicated treaties, um, empires holding on to their colonies, everyone getting drafted because nobody felt like it was noble by the end of it. Um, but during the early stages of the war, um, young men in particular were convinced by this really aggressive nationalism that going to die for king and country... Um, You know, this is truer in Britain than it is in the U.S. because by the time the U.S. entered the war, it was pretty clear that it was a horrible, awful slog and was going to cause ripples throughout the 20th century. Um, But, you know, Rand still picks up on a little bit of this ideology. Um, So these young men were convinced that to die for king and country was the noblest thing you could possibly do um, and that it meant being a good citizen. It meant serving the state. And mostly it just meant getting mowed down at 18 after spending weeks and weeks and weeks in trenches with horrible living conditions while also you know buttressing a series of colonial empires that were hell-bent on holding on to territories whose land they had stolen from other people so like there's nothing good about world war one um and yeah i think people who were involved in it managed to preserve their ability to be involved in it and not go you know batch which many of them did anyway um by believing very passionately and very idealistically and very meaningfully in this idea that the individual sacrifice of an individual life could actually mean something it could matter and could save something um so that is a very common story that's told about world war one you know pick a world war one historical novel that is about masculinity and it, it picks up on those themes probably the best iteration i've read is pat barker's regeneration trilogy um so dry also talk you know he's also doing that well and world war one story only the thing to which rand is sacrificing himself is not king and country but ecology which makes it a little bit different
0: i love that yeah it it, it really does I, and i love that sacrifice or that that element of sacrifice kind of being yeah almost de-romanticized because of that because it kind of um or like kind of what you said um, with the character he kind of you know he hate he loves he loves ecology or whatnot but he hates himself um and just kind of what that what that means the that whole psychological element of, of where where you navigate sometimes when you're so you mean you mean so well and yet um yeah it kind of falls apart in regards to how romanticized a a notion can be um i wanted to also kind of what i love about this book too um, it it interwo it interweaves kind of the element of journalism, I think, which you spoke about almost um, uh, with that, that element of, yeah, everything was going on and, and her friendship um, or his friendship with his friend Jonah, who is a journalist. And I think that was a really interesting element. Um, also, can you speak a little bit about um, his love interest, Gabriel, because I think it was a another great, just great element that was put in there. Um, especially with the excitement of 1917 and, and that new perspective that I haven't um, personally seen pop culturally before. So can you speak a little bit about that? Uh,
1: I, I do want to pause here again to recommend Pat Barker's Magnificent Regeneration Trilogy, which is very World War One and very gay. And actually, there are quite a lot of World War One plus queer oh. books out there, in part because this was the early 12th tw- Century when for the very first time, um God, I could go into the the history of the there's a lot of history here that I don't have time to go into. Um, but for the first time, queerness was beginning to be recognized as a sociological category that was distinguished by a bunch of scientists and sociologists from uh heterosexuality. And so queer people were in the limelight in a way that they hadn't ever been before. So there's a lot of Um, contemporary novels from the World War I era. I mean, like Virginia Woolf did this, that talk about the war, but also feature queer characters who are, you know, acknowledging themselves as queer, and that's a distinct identity. That's something that was new. Um, Queer people were not new, have not ever been new. We've always been around. Um, uh, But homosexual as a distinct identity category was something that was beginning to infiltrate the public consciousness in at least the Anglophone sphere in the early 20th century. Um, so that's all preparatory. Uh, I, I think what you're asking too is why I chose to weave a queer relationship into this novel um, beyond the fact that I'm, I'm queer myself. So, you know, you'd like to see yourself reflected in history. Um, so the first answer was that the relationship with Gabriel was something that was in the, and this is a cheat of an answer. It, it was in the initial story that I wrote for Lackington's and it just carried over into the novel. Um, but the kind of more interesting answer to that question is that, As a queer writer, writing queer characters in an earlier time period always presents you with a number of choices. So I wanted to be as historically accurate as I could about what it was like to be a gay man in early 20th century America. And I should say that not all historicals are going for accuracy, and that's totally fine. That was one of my goals, though. Um, But the challenge with that is that sometimes people assume that queers in the past spent their whole lives isolated and depressed, or that everyone in their communities hated them, or that they hated themselves, which Rand does, but not because he's queer he's just got problems. Um, And it isn't true at all that queer life was small and contained and depressed uh, before Oscar Wilde went on trial. Um, I wanted to write a novel where the character's queerness was a problem for some of the people around them, as it really historically would have been, but was also tolerated or even embraced by others, which it also historically would have been. Um, Most importantly, um, I really, really didn't want to write a novel where any of the queer characters and like the entire main cast is queer. So Rand, Gabriel, Yana, um, who is Rand's butch journalist, best friend and Marie, her partner. I didn't want any of them hating themselves for being queer. Um, some pe- queer people did totally do that, uh, even in 1917. But that wasn't the story that I wanted to tell.
0: And I like that a lot. Yeah, it was definitely very much a an element and yet not a. I, I, of course, it it add, it adds a conflict to it. But yes, there wasn't a, it it, it wasn't the job the job at hand, if you will, of of the um of the subject moving forward. And I think I I love that of of I think it it does a great job of expressing the complexities of of how you can have so many different you know his love for nature, his love for Gabriel, you know his love for just truth and sacrifice and just and and going forward. And how um, sometimes there's not a, a full preoccupation to that. It's it's a full um, you know it's 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 kind of allegorical to that tapestry of everything kind of happening within nature and all these different things. And um, I, I like that you said that because um, yeah. And and what I what I really like too. A part of this book takes place in France, and I definitely got a different look of kind of in that element of understanding wait a minute, I am I need to brush up on history here. What is, yeah, what is the feeling in France at this time, at these, you know, these clubs and whatnot? And I think, um, so once again, it kind of exposes to a sense of, oh, man, maybe we don't know everything we thought we did as far as history and whatnot, which I think was really nice, too. It's like, yeah, What? what is the attitude? And how much you become considerate, um, even without even thinking about it, and how much you take for granted and just, you know, novels that aren't inclusive in that way. Um
1: can I put in a, a
0: really yeah. brief Wisconsin specific plug here? Because, Definitely. Um even the characters
1: in my novel look at Europe and see it as a place of queer freedom, but there were those spaces in the US in you know the early 20th century and even in Wisconsin and even outside of the cities um and for a really great Wisconsin-specific resource and what queer life looked like here in the early 20th century, I cannot recommend enough a book that was published by the Wisconsin Historical Society in 2019. Um, It's by R. Richard Wagner, and it's called We've Always Been Here, Wisconsin's Early Gay History. Um, And what's remarkable about the book is that it talks about the queer networks that existed not only in the big cities, where we kind of expect queer people to, to congregate, but also the networks that existed in rural
0: areas. And it's it's just a great read, so I recommend it. Mm, I'll definitely check that out. I I love uh, that'd be interesting to really explore with the reality of of that nature too, because I, again, that's kind of a he- heuristic that I almost found myself within this novel. It's like, oh, okay, it's a major metropolitan city, you know, cultural center, France. Sure, you know, it's it it yeah, it's a it's a we we have those heuristics, I think, so much. In society and in history, that I, I, it's good to flesh out and really dive deep into that. So that's wonderful. Yeah, I will definitely check that out. Um, I also wanted to ask to, um, or kind of more discuss, in a sense, um, there was a, um, which kind of maybe will lead into, uh, and maybe maybe you can um, do another passage in regards to um, this kind of a somewhat of a major point, I would say a very major point in the book where um, Rand kind of, st- he starts to educate the reader and himself in regards to this this kind of interconnectedness of like, and kind of what you've already mentioned on of of how much we can't just force technology and how we can, we need to be as more mindful as we can with kind of creating a network and a tapestry of things. Um, and it brought to my mind this sense that is often used within philosophy and just kind of anthropology and different things of this aspect of a rhizomatic mind, I don't know if you've heard of this, versus a arborescent uh, kind of mind, and um, and how one is more open-ended, the rhizomatic, versus the arborescent being a more a product at hand, a truth, a figuring out, um, which I think kind of speaks to all these elements in the book, too, not just nature. Um, but uh, I don't know if you wanted to speak to that at all, or maybe kind of include that with the passage. So the first thing I will say, and
1: I'm saying this on air to any of my (laughs) colleagues who are listening, I have not actually read Deleuze and Guattari.
0: I'm sorry. Me neither. Um, (laughs)
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, because I know that they tend to be the, um, the the main source for that theory of the rhizome and of knowledge moving, um, not at a straightforward or linear or, um, hierarchical way but through these back channels and the metaphor i know i can talk about the metaphor um the metaphor is of course of rhizomes which are an underground root network that are you know dispersed and spread out and where there is no easily discernible hierarchy but um you know roots are exchanging chemicals with other roots with mycorrhizal relationships with their uh with uh, fungi and with all of the bugs in the surrounding soil and other things all the time. Um, And so it's this community that is not hierarchically organized. And that's the kind of metaphor for knowledge. And I think that that is actually a really good metaphor, if not for how you learn about something. I do think that hierarchy is necessary in beginning to learn about a new topic. Like even researching this book, I read general histories first and then more specific histories and then really granular histories. Um, But I do think that it's a good metaphor for a kind of idealized community where if you get real far away from hierarchy, um, you know, you could live in a kind of harmony where no one is ordering anyone else about. Um, And I, I don't want to turn this into a philosophy (laughs) because I think that that's a really lovely idea. And I think it's very hard to scale for sure. Um, But uh, I I do think that that is a excellent way to think about nature uh, because Mm. humans have since, you know, since the classical era seen themselves as the apex of a natural system where they were the ones who were wielding it and changing it and controlling it. And, you know, that thinking about humans as the the governors of nature has filtered down even to kind of contemporary ecology. And I think that there's a lot of discussion now within ecology about idea, this idea that humans are members of nature's community. We're not the ones directing the show while at the same time recognizing the actual reality of you know that's that's a really nice idea you know we are members of the community but we are still the ones who have you know the the massive amounts of coal and oil burning automobiles that are destroying the environment yeah. so we do have quite a lot more power than say the little springtail hanging out in the dirt who's part of that rhizomatic network and we have to balance those two ideas so um, taking down hierarchies is really nice, but not if you're using it as a way to avoid responsibi- the responsibilities that come with having the most power of any species ever on the planet to change the climate, except maybe those blue-gray algae that gave us oxygen way, way, way back in the pre-Cambrian.
0: No, it, it's great. Yeah, I love I love that kind of—and uh, and that's where—and we're running out of time, unfortunately, I could talk about this book— um, for days. I think it's a great kind of just fun, but all these ideas that kind of start to spur. So um, listeners, please pick this up. It's it's a great book here. And it, and it really just it's humbling. It gives a mindful idea. Um, I, what we'll do is um, if you want to close out with that other passage, I think, because it speaks to kind of that that mindset. Um, and then, um, yeah, we'll go from there. But if you if you want to read that, that'd be wonderful. I'll actually can I change the passage that
1: I'm Go ahead, yeah. I was, I had originally, listeners, I had originally planned to read uh, a moment where Rand tries to grow a forest in no man's land, which is not a great idea for a number of reasons. (laughs) But I I want to read with, uh, I want to end with a slightly more hopeful passage. Please. Mm -hmm. Let me. So I'm reading a passage from the very end of the book where Rand is walking through a landscape which challenges some of his ideas about wilderness but which he comes to love precisely because it is not wild. along the road the weedy gnarls of smartweed were blossoming and the speedwell's purple wicks lit the yard was sticky with the smell of milkweed a hothouse could not have been more vividly perfumed in his notebook he scribbled first bloom smartweed veronica species full bloom yarrow common milkweed black-eyed susan bindweed, fleabane. The weeds' whites and pinks and violets waved above the pale, tired dirt. Agriculturally considered, the whole area was impoverished. Its remaining farmers grew hay and corn, but their yields could not compete with those of the fertile south. The abandoned farm's poverty was typical. The sandy glacial plains along the river contained a moth-eaten quilt of similar empty lots. This one had been cleared before the Civil War, based on the size of the two white pines planted on either side of the cabin. Whoever cleared it had probably tried wheat first, as had many homesteaders in the middle of the last century. He had given it up sooner than the state's other farmers who, though they'd eroded their hillsides, had at least started with good soil. Nor could the area fit anyone's definition of wild, Dotted with gravel quarries and river towns, its few unpeopled spaces were so only because their timber or soil had been exhausted. This stretch of river was a waste margin. Like an empty lot or a rail embankment, its barren edges bordered richer lands. Yet at eight o'clock on a Wednesday morning, the farm was cheery with life. The cicada's background buzz was like the din of a fun fair. A red-bellied woodpecker drilled for grubs with the energy of a girl bobbing apples. The yellow Coriopsis and black-eyed Susan smelled chocolatey, adding to the effect. In a neighbor's hayfield, Michigan lilies were exploding their orange sparklers. Rand had spent his first week exploring the farm and its surroundings. By the second, he no longer wondered why Ned valued its data. Walking along the road, he was suddenly reminded of his first excursions as a boy in Inselburg. He had spent hours crouched in his family's woodlot, Marveling at the spring pool's spread of yellow crowfoot, in the little hollow behind the neighbor's farm, he'd lost himself tracking phoebes to their nests on granite overhangs. These tamed remnants had been vital to him; their wilderness irrelevant. He thought of the plantation in France, barren and regulated. It had still soothed him to lie beneath its branches. He flinched but followed the memory. Under those trees, he told Gabriel that clear water was his heart though at that point he'd spent only a handful of days there. He'd built the marsh's shrine from silver mist and logging. A smaller shadow cut across his own like a thrown spear. He looked up to see a cooper's hawk land in the elbow of an elm. Clutched in one claw was a downy squab. The mourning doves in the cabin's eaves would earn their name today. It was the funfair's first tragedy, a reminder that life paid no heed to boundaries of mood or definition. He stopped and watched
0: it eat. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, Again, it was such a pleasure to read. I definitely recommend it um, to the people listening, uh, especially just as an enjoyable relationship uh, to the land, whether it would be in Wisconsin here or just in general. Um, Ben, thank you so much. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking with you. Um anything um anything else you would want to say before we close out here? Uh no, that's it. Thank except for thank you so much for
1: having me. Uh lovely chatting with you, Cole, and thank you to Madison Bookbeat. Thank Madden.
0: you, so, thank you so much. I've been speaking with Wisconsin author Ben Platic. His debut novel, Dry Land, releases this month on September twenty-sixth and will be available for from UW Press at your favorite local bookstore as well as online. Find out more about Ben and his writing on his website, www.bplatic.net. And you can also find him on Twitter at bplatic. You've been listening to Madison Bookbeat, your community radio home for local authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I've been your host, Cole Erickson. Thanks to our guest this hour and to engineer Andrew Thomas. Up next is Three Hours of Jazz with Alex Weiland-White. But first, the Insurgent Radio Kiosk. I'll catch you next month. You're listening to Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Thank you.